Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and this week I have a meaty middle about people who refer to themselves with their own name. A quick and dirty tip about the difference between being named for someone and being named after someone. And another quick and dirty tip about the difference between misinformation and disinformation. But first, a listener named Dwight, who's a computer programmer, pointed out that last week, when Jane Solomon talked about being on the Unicode Emoji Subcommittee of the Unicode Consortium, some people might not know what Unicode is, and that's a great point. So if you were wondering, here's how the Unicode Consortium website explains. It says, quote, Unicode provides a unique number for every character, no matter what the platform no matter what the program, no matter what the language, unquote. Unicode is a standard that all modern software programmers have agreed to use. So, for example, if you use U plus F602 in a program that reads code, it'll know that you want the face with tears of joy emoji. So when Jane was talking about submitting proposals for the bone emoji, she was essentially saying that she and her colleagues were lobbying to get a code assigned to the image of a bone, so it could be part of the standard set of emoji available across platforms. And now, on to iliasms. Recently, Grammar Girl listener Mark J. Yevchak wrote in with an interesting question. He'd been watching the HBO miniseries Generation Kill, about the first days of the war in Iraq, and he noticed that one of the characters, Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Godfather Ferrando, often uses his own name when speaking. Here are a few examples. The general has asked this battalion to be America's shock troops, and Godfather can't tell the general we don't do windows. Godfather doesn't like to be told what to do by the enemy. Godfather needs an airfield. Mark wanted to know what it's called when someone talks like this, and he wondered if he was alone in thinking it made the speaker sound self-righteous. Mark, here are your answers. This verbal tick is known as iliasm. That's the habit of referring to yourself in the third person. It can make the speaker sound egotistical. Think of Dwayne Johnson as The Rock, asking, Can you smell what The Rock is cooking? He uses iliasm deliberately to exaggerate his self-importance. Think also of the character Hercule Poirot in Agatha Christie's Mysteries. Christie often portrayed the detective as referring to himself in the third person, as a way of depicting his self-grandeur. In one of her books, another character asks him about it. Dr. Lutz Tell me, why do you insist on referring to yourself in the third person? It's intensely irritating. Hercule Poirot. It helps Poirot to keep a distance from his genius. <laughs> in the real world, speakers sometimes also revert to iliasm when they want to create some distance between themselves and their actions. For example, when basketball player LeBron James was criticized for leaving the Cleveland Cavaliers to join the Miami Heat— he responded using iliasm, quote, One thing I didn't want to do was make an emotional decision. I wanted to do what was best for LeBron James. What would make him happy? Unquote. James was lampooned for speaking this way and accused of being narcissistic. He might have been, or he might have been trying to control his emotions in a positive way. 
You see, a 2017 study in the journal Nature showed that using ileism can actually be helpful. The study found that using your own name when you're speaking to yourself, rather than the pronoun I, can help you better control your feelings and behavior when you're under stress. The scientists theorized that, quote, third-person self-talk leads people to think about the self similar to how they think about others. This provides them with the psychological distance needed to facilitate self-control, unquote. In other words, if you give yourself a command using the word you or your own name, you're more likely to do it than if you use the word I. Weird, huh? Here's an example. If you've ever watched Serena Williams play tennis, you've probably heard her shout, Come on! She's talking to herself, but she uses a second-person imperative command with an implied subject. You, come on! Williams tends to do this after difficult points or at critical moments in the match. She's talking to herself, but at a slight distance, as if she were her own coach or cheerleader. The scientists in the nature study call this type of self-talk a relatively effortless form of self-control. I'd suggest nearly all of us could try this, bringing ileism to bear in our day-to-day lives. For example, instead of saying, I'm totally going to fail this math test, say, you are going to study like a champ and you're going to ace this math test. Instead of saying, there's no way I can run a mile, say, you're tough, you can make it, keep going. And instead of saying, it'll take me forever to wash these dishes, say, Nate, just wash one dish at a time. Get started and you'll get it done. One caution, you may want to say these encouragements in your head or whisper them quietly to yourself. Otherwise, you could be accused of another variation of ileism, Hulk speak. That's when a speaker refers to him or herself in the third person and strips out most of the prepositions and articles. Here's an example from the movie Thor Ragnarok. Hulk. Hulk always angry. Thor. I know, we're the same, you and I. Just a couple of hot-headed fools. Hulk. Yeah, same. Hulk like fire, Thor like water. Thor. Well, we're kind of both like fire. Hulk. But Hulk like real fire, like raging fire. Thor like smoldering fire. So, when you're trying to finish that 5K, rather than shouting, you've got this, Monica, you might want to whisper. If people still look at you funny, just explain, you're using a literary device known as ileism, and it's derived from the Latin word ili, I-L-L-E, meaning he or that man. That should keep him quiet. That segment was written by Samantha Enslin, who runs Dragonfly Editorial. You can find her at dragonflyeditorial.com or on Twitter as dragonflyedit. Next, I have a quick and dirty tip about the difference between being named for someone and being named after someone. When people ask about my name, Mignon, I usually tell the happy story that it's a family name that comes from my great-great-grandmother's favorite flower, the mignonette, which is a tiny white ground cover that smells very sweet. But there's a sadder side to the story that I almost never tell, but this seems relevant with all the gun control marches that happened in the U.S. last week. And that story is that I'm named after my mother's cousin, who was accidentally shot and killed when she was a little girl, five or six years old, by her older brother who was playing with a gun. 
And the other mignon farther back in the family died in childbirth. So people often joke that my parents must have been obsessed with steak because of filet mignon, but it really seems that they were more obsessed with death. But was I named for my mother's cousin or named after my mother's cousin? Technically, according to Garner's modern English usage, when a person or thing is named for someone, it's an honor. For example, roads, schools, libraries, hospitals, and airports are named for people, to honor them. And you would say, the annual Agatha Award is named for Agatha Christie and awards prizes to mystery and crime writers, because the award is named in her honor. When a person or thing is named after someone, it can also be an honor, but it doesn't have to be. So you could say, the Pulitzer Prize is named after Joseph Pulitzer, a powerful newspaper publisher who left money from his estate to establish the prize. Because it's kind of an honor, but he gave the money himself, so they also kind of had to name it after him. And you would say that I'm named after my mother's cousin, because it's not really an honor, it's more of a remembrance. And you would also say that I'm named after the flower mignonette, because it's definitely not an honor for the flower. Also, there may be an American English-British English difference here. Lynn Murphy, author of the new book The Prodigal Tongue, reports that while both named for and named after are used in American English, British writers are much more likely to use named after than named for. Finally, namesake is a related word that can also be confusing. Multiple reference guides say that although it can be used to describe either the younger person who's been named after someone or the older person who was the inspiration for the name, namesake is most commonly used to describe the younger person. So I am my mother's cousin's namesake. Finally, I have another quick and dirty tip about the difference between disinformation and misinformation that includes a funny World War II story about carrots. The misprefix and the disprefix can both negate things in a lot of ways, and they've taken on different meanings in misinformation and disinformation. The misprefix can mean wrong, mistaken, badly, or just negate the meaning that follows. Misinformation is information that's incorrect, but the word is meant to carry a connotation that the bad advice was given without malice. Here's an example from the novel Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Besides, said Mr. Norrell, I really have no desire to write reviews of other people's books. Modern publications upon magic are the most pernicious things in the world, full of misinformation and wrong opinions. And here's another example in advice from the Irish writer William Trevor. I have never believed in the axiom that a writer should first and foremost write about what he knows. I think it's a piece of misinformation. Another example of a word that uses the mis-prefix to describe an unintentional error is misspeak. Moving on, I was surprised to learn that disinformation came to English from the Russian word desinformatsiya, and refers to false information that is deliberately intended to mislead, especially when it's distributed to other countries. Here's an example from Ben Goldacre's book, Bad Science. Carrots were the source of one of the great disinformation coups of World War II. Yes, 
carrots. And this story sounded too good to be true, but I looked it up and Smithsonian Magazine and Snopes both have it too. Apparently, the British Royal Air Force was using a new type of radar in 1939, but they wanted to keep it secret, and the Germans were noticing that British pilots were suddenly really good at detecting their planes in the dark as they tried to cross the English Channel. To try to throw off the Germans, the British started releasing stories about how they were feeding their pilots so many carrots that it was improving their night vision. Nobody knows whether the Germans actually believed the carrot stories, but historians do seem to think that the disinformation campaign contributed to the idea in both the British and German public consciousness that carrots are good for your eyesight. And there is evidence that some British people started eating carrots because they thought it would help them see during the blackouts. But this was just a side effect of the disinformation. Carrots are good for your eyes, but eating carrots doesn't actually improve your vision, day or night. The dis prefix can have many negative or reversing meanings, including apart or away, but the Oxford English Dictionary puts disinformation in the same category as the words disease and dishonor, for which the prefix gives a sense of the opposite of something, or the lack or absence of something. The opposite of ease— the opposite of honor, and disinformation is the opposite of true information. So that's your quick and dirty tip. Misinformation is false information that's given without malice, and disinformation is false information, such as government propaganda, that's meant to deceive people. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. The ebook of my New York Times bestseller, Grammar Girl's Quick and Dirty Tips for Better Writing, is on sale for $2.99 for just a couple more days. The sale only goes through March, so if you're interested, get it now. Grammar Girl is part of the Quick and Dirty Tips podcast network. You can find all my old articles and podcasts and all the other great Quick and Dirty Tips podcasts at quickanddirtytips.com. That's all. Thanks for listening. 